It's March 1981, and this episode we look at the magazines of the month and bask in the power of the Atari 8-bit computers by talking about the game Sabotage by Mark Allen, an Apple II game distributed by online systems and never released for the Atari. But wait, this is an Atari podcast. We discuss how it's possible to convert an Apple II game to the Atari, but not the other way around. I talked to Paul Hagstrom about the differences in the Apple II and the Atari, and share Atari Age user Seamus's inside story on how the game was converted using only the Apple II binary code. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode six. podcast about Atari 8-bit games and magazines. This episode is somewhat of a special episode in that I'm going to be talking about a game that was never actually officially released to the Atari. This is a game that was ported using only the object code. There was no source code available, and it was hacked to work on the Atari using knowledge of both the Apple II hardware and the Atari hardware. So I've got a great story from the guy who did it, and I've also got an interview with Paul Hextrom, who is a knowledgeable Apple II user who gave me some background on the Apple II hardware, and specifically the graphics hardware and the difficulties that one might encounter when porting something from the Apple to the Atari. And as we'll discover, this is mostly a one-way transition so that it is possible to transfer Apple object code to the Atari, but it is much harder to go from the Atari to the Apple because the Atari had so much more specialized hardware. So let's kick it off with some feedback. On Twitter, I got some feedback from Bill Kendrick, who said that Pokey has a lot of options not available directly in BASIC, specifically the 16-bit options that you could... So you could tie two uh, channels together and get 16-bit resolution, which is, you know, 65,000-plus tones. And that's right, so I I didn't cover that when I was talking about... Because I think I did some back-of-the-envelope stuff and said there was, like, you know, 2048 available tones that you could generate. But that's true, that was only using the 8-bit resolution of the Pokey chip. So you can tie two channels together and get 16-bit resolution and get much uh, finer resolution for the, the tones that are generated. And there's a chapter in Dairy Atari that covers a lot of this stuff. And in a separate note, Bill also said that uh, there were other C derivatives, uh, CC8 and ACE-C, available for the Ataris, and that the CC65 compiler actually started on the Atari. And I'll include a link to the archive on umich.edu. Uh, Back in the early days of the internet, there were there were a few FTP sites that, that had some Atari stuff, and I'd, I remember going to this one in particular. Other feedback, friend of the show, Rick, wrote in, and he said, thanks for the video of the walk and the walkthrough of the uh, retro arcade machines at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. He said, I think it's cool you found new love for Ms. Pac-Man, and I'm curious if the machine's dip switches were set to more easily conquer the mazes. And I have to say that I actually thought the same thing, because I'm not that good at Ms. Pac-Man. So actually, actually, my wife and I went to a, an arcade recently, and Ms. Pac-Man was there, and I had told her the story about me, you know, having this good score on, on Ms. Pac-Man at, at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. So I said, oh, let's try it. And it was set to the fast speed, and it was like, I don't know if you remember that scene from Christmas Vacation where the sled's going down the hill, but that's what Ms. Pac-Man felt like to me. Just ridiculously fast. It was so fast I couldn't make all the turns. and But so, I, I have to say that the game I played at Portland Retro Gaming Expo, so it was definitely not that fast. And I played it actually here on MAME, and I set the machine settings to normal, and played it 
and I got a similar score. So I think it was. I think that ma- machine at the expo was legitimate. I don't know. Well, I'm gonna call it legitimate. I'll I'll say it was legitimate. So that's a legitimate score. Yes, indeed. But whether or not it is is, I don't know. I'll have to see if, when I play some more. I'll let you know. So Rick goes on. He says, "But it really doesn't matter. I you cleared more mazes on that game than I ever did. So I think it's quite an achievement in my book." Well, thanks, Rick. Yeah, I, was, I don't know. I was a bit proud of myself, I must say, because I'm yeah, I really kind of suck at games. Actually, I think I I think I beat both Carrington and Mike. Hmm. But I'm sure I didn't beat the Ten Pence Arcade guys because those guys are crazy good at games. Rick also goes on to say, it says, you know you risk being dead to Mike and Carrington on no quarter with your Apple II to Atari 8-bit computer challenge. I made a comment about the superior sound of the Commodore 64 over the Apple II in one of the podcasts, and not only did they mention that I was dead to both of them, they didn't read my last feedback email uh, that I sent, so I guess I'm banished. Yeah, I may be banned here from no quarter. We'll see. I'll make sure to send some feedback to highlight the superiority of the Atari over the Apple II and see where it goes. I still am thinking about crashing Kansas Fest uh, in 2015. Talk Apple II to the Apple II guys and maybe bring some Atari stuff and, yeah, see maybe I can convert some Apple II people to Atari. I'm sure they'll appreciate that. Yeah. What do you think? And even though I kid about the Atari being superior to the Apple II, it's, it's like it's almost half a generation ahead of the Apple II, so it's really hard to compare. Well, as this might be a long episode, I think we'll get right into the magazines. So we're talking about magazines for March of 81. So the first is Analog 4800 Magazine number 2 for March and April of 81. There's an 800 on the cover with sort of lots of different screens kind of popping out. And as you open the magazine, already the, the font and the layout looks familiar to me. And, you know, I really didn't start reading till issue, I don't know, 11, 12, something like that. In the Atari News section, there is a review of the Atari word processor, which, coincidentally, Wade at Inverse Itasky has reviewed already, so I'll include a link to that episode. I think that was his... Was that his first episode? There's uh, the new... In the new products section, they're, they're still covering the, the 2600, or as they call it here, the VCS, because it's still... It wasn't renamed the 2600 until the 5200 came out. So they're talking about like games like Freeway and Kaboom, stuff of that era. There's an article about using the note and point features of BASIC, which is are sort of like BASIC commands to deal with records, like uniform-sized records. And I don't remember it well enough, but I think it's like you can... Essentially, it allows random access within a file. So if you give it a, a the size of the record, you can tell it to go to record 12, and it'll go to the right sector of the file and, and pull it out for you. I don't remember using that much. I don't really... I wasn't really into the database kind of stuff when I was working on the 8-bits. I was mostly trying to program games and things. There's a type-in program to help balance your checkbook, but I'll leave that to Wade to review. There's some more type-in stuff. There's a, a little player missile graphics tutorial, a little basic program to use the joystick, and you move this little player on the screen. Kind of like give you a, sort of a basic idea of, of how to work it in basic. There's a nice technical article about DMA timings, and it sort of explains how the Antic steals CPU time from the 6502. So basically, Antic and the 6502 are both accessing the same memory. There's no like separate display memory like you have nowadays. And both can't access the memory at the same time, so when the Antic needs to draw the, the screen, it halts the 6502, accesses memory for what it, to do what it needs to do, and then it restarts the 6502 and it picks up where it is, where it was left off. 
The 6502 ran at uh, 1.79 megahertz in NTSC or 1.77 in PAL, but it shows a chart of how much processor time is used by the Antic. And so, so if you're running in like graphics eight, which is the which takes the most uh, resources, you're using spending almost 40 percent of your time in Antic. So you're reducing essentially your effective clock speed by 40 percent. Anyway, there's a link in uh, a book called Atari Graphics and Arcade Game Design that has some more. Uh, information about how Antic steals time. And I also found a link for the Antic technical notes on a Polish website. There's a video timing diagram that's really, that's pretty good. It's, it sort of, it gives a picture ex- explanation of where the Antic steals some cycles and, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but I'll have a link in the show notes. There's a type-in game called Canon Duel that I didn't actually want to type in and I couldn't find anywhere, but it sort of from the description seemed like that sort of mountain shoot style game where you have the two people on either side of terrain you try to lob stuff at each other. I will definitely look at more type-in games if I don't actually have to type them in. There's an article about the Atari Music Composer. It was a column by Mike Deshane, and there's a program by Charles Bashan that kind of defined this this format for um, program listings, but the program listings would ter- would result in music. And I couldn't find this. I looked for it. And again, I just don't feel like typing stuff in. But I would be interested in exploring this again if anybody knows where to find uh, this copy. I I found some websites of analog discs, but I didn't see that this had... Well, they didn't start shipping discs with analog until a little bit later, and I couldn't find that this one was available. But if anybody knows where it is, then please let me know. Tom Hudson has an article about a graphics clipping routine in BASIC, because if you try to draw to a point off-screen, you get this... Uh, error negative 141, so you couldn't like draw from one point to an arbitrary point off the screen. So this routine allows you to do that. You, you can give it coordinates and it'll clip to whatever the viewport is on, on the screen. There's an article called The Game Room by Tom Repstad, which is the start of a new column, and I don't remember this, so I'll... And I haven't read, I haven't read ahead in Analog, really, so I don't know how far this goes. But as a spoiler, I don't think it lasts to issue 11 or 12, you know, because that's when I started reading, and I don't remember it. So it's talking about sort of general game design and game theory. And in this first one, they're talking about the random distribution of islands in, say, like a strategy game where you're like a, a ship and you have to cruise around these islands or something. So how do you get these islands distributed on your map without overlapping? And there's some code with... Uh, well, he describes like bounding circles or bounding boxes are too limiting... So essentially this code is to code that checks to see if a point is inside a polygon, and it sets up these equations in sort of this, this expensive setup routine and then has a quicker routine to actually check um, using these pre-computed arrays. There's a review of the game Energy Czar by Chris Crawford, which is a game I actually consider reviewing, but it seemed kind of involved, and I'm at this point I'm still looking for kind of arcade-style games, you know, stuff that's not doesn't have a huge learning curve although I will probably break that in the next episode. There's a review of the Atari Calculator, which Wade at Inverse Tatesky also reviewed recently. That was in his uh, Season 1, Episode 3. Clue link there. There's a bunch of printer reviews. Also, of the there's the 825, which is the regular 80-column, the, the 820 printer, which is like a 40-column printer, and there's a review of a, a new 822 thermal printer, which... Yeah, the thermal printing, I guess, still exists in some faxes today, but you know, it has that roll paper and just not terribly useful nowadays. 
there's a little quick bit about what to do if you have two files with the same name. It gives this sort of complicated procedure because if you try to delete one, it'll delete them both. And if you try to rename one, it'll rename them both. So here's the procedure it says. To remedy this is a little tricky, so pay attention. First, turn up the volume on your TV set, then use the DOS E command to change a file name. So listen carefully to the sound of the TV speaker. You can hear the first file name being changed, and then the second. You can tell when the first name has been changed when a different beep is produced. Now do it again, but this time, as soon as the first file name has been changed, hit System Reset. Then you go back to DOS and see if one of the file names has been changed. If your timing was off and both names were changed, or maybe neither, then you just try again. And don't worry, you can't wipe out a file by doing this. So it's interesting that the disk access was actually slow enough that you could intercept it before the second file name is changed. I found some price points here. The Atari 800, I assume was 16K, was 759 The Atari 810 was 489 and the, an 820 printer plus the 850 interface was 938 bucks. That printer and 850 combo would be over $2,500 today. That's <laughs> just astounding. And coming in issue number three, it says, Programming Languages for Computers, all about 32K boards, a Towers of Hanoi game, Target Gallery game, and results of our reader survey. So, looking forward to issue three. So here's a new magazine for the podcast, The Atari Connection. This is volume one, number one, for spring of 1981. Uh, It was published quarterly starting in Q1 of 81, and continuing for two issues into 1984, and then presumably it didn't survive when Jack Trammell purchased Atari from Warner. VintageComputer.com describes it as the official publication of the Atari Computer Division, a quarterly slick-format newsletter slash magazine that was as much an extended sales brochure as it was an informational magazine. And I sort of vaguely remember this magazine, and looking at it today, it's definitely it's definitely Atari-specific, you know, advertising, only first-party stuff. And at least in this first issue, there were, weren't very many authors credited, and it definitely uh, kept with sort of the sales brochure kind of status. Almost like a, if you could imagine like an in-flight magazine, if all the in-flight magazines were about 8-bit computers. I mean, this is kind of the magazine it would be. It's very fluffy, at, the, at least at this point. I've had some feedback that, you know, there's some more interesting articles later on, and so, I don't know, we'll see. I'll keep up with it at least for a little bit, and we'll see if it's interesting. So it's a $3 cover price, which seems a bit steep for essentially a sales brochure. And on the cover is a kid sitting at a 400 with a 410 tape recorder right there, you know, with a big smile on his face. There's only 24 pages in this first issue. And like I said, this only first-party stuff. It's only stuff by Atari. So they advertise a few things, like there's a Space Invaders, which we've talked about. Uh, they talk about the light pen that was newly available and the the new 822 thermal printer. But there really, there really wasn't a lot of note. The one thing I did find interesting was that they announced the Atari Program Exchange, and they said it was scheduled to begin in May of 1981. I think Kevin Savitz has scanned some of the APX catalogs, so I'd, I'd, we'll probably try to take a look at those when they come around. So yeah, I didn't really find a lot to talk about in this magazine, so we'll we'll see. I'll, I'm not sure that I'll continue covering it for much longer. Although, again, I've had a little bit of feedback. Like CGO apps on Twitter, Chris Olson mentioned that there was a music program that he used that was from an Atari Connection that, that we ended up finding. I think it's a later, like, 83 or something. So yeah, like I said, not a whole lot of interesting about this. Just a sales brochure. So for future issues, I'll kind of find just the interesting bits and talk about those. Maybe. We'll see. Compute number 10 for March of 1981. 
on the cover of the Atari was mentioned about how to design your own Atari character set. There's a couple other things. There was uh, how to clear the Apple II low-res graphics screen, which is apropos for the topic of this podcast. And there was an article about machine language taking the plunge. So inside the magazine, there was highlights of the winter CES from a 6502 point of view. It said, for those of us who have invested in 6502-based systems, it is heartening to see that this processor continues to be among the most popular. Compute said that the uh, VIC-20 was a hit of the show. It was priced at $299. There wasn't any new Atari hardware shown, but they said the Atari showed the Pilot cartridge and the Atari word processor. They said both were quality and should do much to help Atari on its accelerating growth curve. They said there were rumors of nice new hardware, and apparently that Atari is in it for the long haul. But they don't really mention what the rumors were, so I don't know what they're talking about. And as a note to the Intellivisionaries, Compute said, Those of you who are waiting for the keyboard portion of the Mattel Mattel Intellivision, complete with a 6502 base computer with 16K of RAM and Microsoft Basic, will have to wait a little longer. Once again, they say deliveries will begin in March. Only the year has changed. And if you listen to the Intellivisionaries, uh, spoiler alert, this never actually gets released. I think it's the ECS they're talking about. So the article, Machine Language for Beginners, mostly references the pet. And in sort of an editor's note, they said, oh, it's applicable to all machines. But I think it would be confusing to beginners uh, using other platforms because they really talk about the pet memory locations and what to call and the pet and jump to this location in the pet ROM and all this stuff. So I didn't think it was really that general. There's an article on the basics of light pen operation, and basically it's like a phototransistor that just senses really bright spots on the screen. There was a question on Atari H somewhere, it's like, would a light pen work with an LCD? And I sort of thought, my initial thought was that it would depend on something on the CRT, but I'm not, I don't think that's right. I think it probably would work. I don't think it's depending on any of the, you know, electron scanning gun itself. I think it's purely the brightness, but I'm not exactly sure. So I'll throw that out there and maybe somebody will know in the feedback. There's another in the continuing series of the mysterious and unpredictable R&D function. This is part three, and we covered this in episode four. And again, it's only mostly unpredictable, isn't it? Because it's still deterministic. There's an article about clearing the Apple II low-res graphics screen, which I only mentioned because it's interesting that it's sort of the timing of this particular podcast is about converting an Apple II program. Although the, the Apple II program we're talking about is in high-res, but still it's kind of interesting to look through this article and see the sort of the memory structure of the Apple graphics. So it's a little machine language subroutine to clear page one of the lowest graphics. And I will refer you to later on in this podcast where I talked to Paul Hexstrom about Apple II graphics. In the Atari Gazette, there are a bunch of nice articles. There's a, a nice condensed overview of character sets, how you design your own character sets, you know, the bitmaps and stuff that you know, it takes 1K of memory and it starts on a page boundary. So it describes where they should go in memory and what characters are where in a TASCII. It even talks about the four color modes where you combine two pixels together. So you really turn, end up with like four by eight tiles, but then you can get four colors out of them. So it's really a good intro to character set stuff on the uh, 8 bits. There's a nice basic program called the Memory Dump and Disassembler that well, you can point it to any place in memory and it'll either give you a hex dump or it'll give you a disassembly. And it's a really nice, compact, basic program. Interestingly, I, they had data statements in this, in the list, the basic listing. 
and it shows text strings without quotes around them, which I don't remember. So I don't know if this is like an error in the text listing, or if I'm just not remembering that data statements could have unquoted um, character data. You know, just stuff separated by commas and not having quote marks around it. And as a, a pedantic side note, they spelled disassembler wrong. <laughs> it's spelled D-I-S-S. So they're dissing their assembler. Creative Computing, Volume 7, Number 3 for March of 81. The cover says, Emphasis on Education. And there's a tree with leaves representing, you know, bits of knowledge and learning thingies and stuff. There's an article about a Space Invaders competition. So they're playing on the 2600 game number one, difficulty A. It said there were three months of regional competitions that included 10,000 entrants. And so out of that, five finalists were brought together by Atari. They apparently competed at the New York headquarters of Warner. And there was a, <laughs> said there was a small audience predominantly composed of press and media people. While a spokesperson for Atari admitted that the competition was an event, a media event designed to help popularize the game, the finalists saw it differently. They were there to find out who was the best. So they said they restricted the competition to two hours, and the highest score after the end of that was the winner. So 16-year-old Bill Heinemann from Los Angeles won with the high score of 165,200 points. He said his winning strategy was to start from the left, take out the bottom two rows of aliens, then try to take out the rightmost column that's left, and then switch back to the left, take out the leftmost column, and kind of ping back and forth from that, which sounds easy. They also had coverage of the winner CES, and in terms of the Atari, they covered kind of the same stuff that, that Compute mentioned, uh, more coverage of Pilot. They also mentioned Scram, the nuclear reactor simulator by Chris Crawford, but no rumors of the new hardware that Compute mentioned. And so this is 1981. I wonder what, they're talking, what the rumors were of the new hardware, because the XLs didn't come out till 83, so it couldn't have been that. Maybe the 815 double disk drive that never came out in any quantity? Hmm. I'm trying to think what came out in 81 or 82. Hmm. And disappointingly, in this issue, there's no Outpost Atari. So I'm not sure. Maybe this is when there's going to be a transition to a new author. I'm sort of intentionally not reading ahead in any of these, so we'll find out together in the next podcast. Softside number 30, volume 3, number 6, for March of 1981, has a snow-covered volcano on the cover. There's really only one Atari program. It's called Number Battle. And one of the things I've... I'm just new to Softside. This is really, you know, this is my second time looking at an issue... And they don't seem to really have screenshots very much. Certainly in this issue, there, didn't, there weren't any screenshots. So I don't know if I would type in a game without knowing what it's going to look like. I do have the disc full of stuff. Uh, listener Kevin sent this to me, but I didn't try this game. They had a really nice technical article about an Atari memory upgrade. So they said if you have an 8K CX852 memory module... You can buy some 4116 dynamic RAM chips, which are 16K by 1 bit, and change your memory module, upgrade it to a 16K memory module. Conveniently, the 4116 dynamic RAM chips were sold by TSE Hardside, which is the store affiliated with Softside Magazine. So it goes over the procedure of disassembling the memory module, uh, popping out the socketed 8K chips, placing them with the 16K chips, and then before you do any soldering, 
they said to replace the board and see if it boots. And if it does, it would still only show 8K, but at least you know that the chips are installed correctly. And then if it does boot, you pop it out, and you, ch- you solder a few resistors and add some jumper wires and stuff, and then presto, you have a 16K board. So that was about it for a soft side that I found interesting. I'm hoping they get some more screenshots in there in future issues. Although I guess, like I said, I do have all the, all the type-in games on disc now from uh, listener Kevin. So I could just try them out. Let's move on to the game review of Sabotage. Sabotage is a 1981 game by Mark Allen, released by Online Systems, which would become Sierra Online. So we talked about Sierra Online actually last episode. So yeah, see episode 5 for lots more info about Sierra Online. So this is an Apple II game. It's one of the very first games I ever played, and I played a lot at school and um, I didn't. I never had the original. It was just one of those games that was available everywhere and, and traded around. I tried playing it on an emulator on my system, but I I run Linux primarily, and there's no good Apple II emulator. Lin Apple, I think, is is available, but I I couldn't get it to work. But I found on the Internet Archive they've got a setup where you can actually play emulators right in the browser using JSMS. So I'll include a link to the sh- in the show notes to Sabotage at the Internet Archive, so you can play the original Apple II version. So why are we talking about an Apple II game on an Atari podcast? Well, that's because this game was converted to work on the Atari. It was converted from object code. There was no, there was no source code available. So Atari Age user Seamus pulled a copy from a buddy that had an Apple II, brought it over to the Atari, hacked around with it, and made it work. This is a great story that I'll, I'll share with you in a little bit. If you've not played Sabotage, the object of this game is you have this little turret sort of at the center bottom of the screen, and there are helicopters and jets flying overhead. The helicopters drop parachutists who land, and if they, if four of them get on either side of your turret, they'll sort of walk over and make this human pyramid, and the fourth guy will blow you up. You can shoot the parachutists, or their parachutes, sort of violating the Geneva Convention. You can shoot the helicopters, shoot the jets, shoot the bombs. The neat thing about shooting the, the jets or the helicopters is they'll create shrapnel, and sort of, if it, the shrapnel lands on other stuff below it, it will take those things out too. The author is Mark Allen who was involved with UCSD Pascal. And I found the same quote virtually everywhere that I looked for information about Mark Allen. I couldn't find a lot. Um, but sort of the same quote is that, in 1978, UCSD students Richard Gleaves and Mark Allen used UCSD Pascal to develop the 6502 interpreter, which became the basis for Apple Pascal. And that quote is virtually identical in every, every reference that I found. So Pascal is kind of an early version of an interpreted, or a, a bytecode interpreted language where the source code is compiled to a bytecode, and then the bytecode is then interpreted through this interpreter that actually runs the machine code. So in theory, anyway, the, the bytecode generated for this version of Pascal could be run on any machine that had the correct interpreter. So it's like Java today. I learned Pascal as, as my first structured language in high school. But it wasn't long after that until C supplanted it, you know, as the dominant programming language. But after seeing a screenshot of Apple Pascal, I'm sure that's the version that I used to learn. Mark Allen also wrote Apple's Stellar Invaders. This was a game actually shipped by Apple. And you can also play this at the Internet Archive. And so I tried it out. It's a, it's a very tough game because your base doesn't move very fast and the enemy shots move really fast. So apparently Stellar Invaders was written in Pascal, and I found a really interesting mailing list post on the disk protection of Stellar Invaders. 
So I couldn't find a lot of more information about Mark Allen. I mean, the, the web is filled with references to various Mark Allens. The most references to that name is the successful triathlete who won, like, I think, five or six straight Ironman Hawaii's. My, my favorite quote about triathlons is by P.Z. Pierce, who said, If God invented marathons to keep people from doing anything more stupid, triathlon must have taken him completely by surprise. And in an interesting coincidence, Mark Allen, the triathlete, also went to UCSD at approximately the same time. So the original game was distributed on disc for the Apple II. For the Atari, it was distributed, unofficially, by the Edge of Reality BBS. I couldn't find a manual for the game, but there is on-screen help that's pretty much all you need, and it says, The object is to score as many points as possible before the enemy destroys your gun in placement. Your gun may be destroyed either by a hit from an enemy bomb or by sabotage when enough paratroopers have reached the ground. The Apple version, you can actually use keyboard or the paddle or the one axis of the joystick, but on the Atari, it's only keyboard control. So it says, pressing D will move the gun to the left, and pressing F will move the gun to the right. Any other key will fire a shell. Firing a shell costs one point. So because it's keyboard only, it's really not a good MAME candidate. And also the buttons don't repeat, so you have to press the button each time you want to change the angle of the, of the turret. I did check it on Altera and the Atari 800 emulator, and all of those seem to work fine. So to play the game, the turret is at the center of the screen, on, on the bottom and you can rotate the gun left and right to change the angle. Firing a shell costs one point. You get two points for a parachuter, five points for a helicopter, a plane, or 25 points for a bomb. When four parachutes fall and the four paratroopers land on one side of your turret, they'll start to walk over one at a time, and they'll create this little human pyramid, and then the, the fourth one will hop up and get to the same level as your turret and then blow you up. It gets pretty frantic, and the I sort of remember the paddle controller on the Apple being able to control the angle of the gun a little bit better than the keyboard, but the paddle's not available for the Atari version. It becomes important to be able to shoot the parachute off the paratrooper without hitting the paratrooper himself, because then when the paratrooper falls, he'll splat on another paratrooper and wipe out that one on the ground. So that it's possible that when four paratroopers on one side, that a helicopter might still drop another one, and if it happens to drop one on the on a top of the column that would land on another paratrooper. If you shoot the parachute, he'll go down and splat the one below him, and then you'll remain. You'll only have three paratroopers on that side, and so the game will continue. It's a simple game to play, but it's not an easy one to play well. And, you know, the really interesting thing about this game is it was never officially released to the for the Atari. So how is it possible to convert an Apple II game to an Atari? I mean, fortunately, they both use the same processor, but there's so much stuff that's different in the machines. You know, how is this done? This is a really impressive task. So to understand a little bit more about the Apple II, I talked to Paul Hagstrom. He's part of the Retro Computing Roundtable, and he also does the podcast Drop Three Inches with Mike McGinnis, which is a pretty technical podcast about the Apple III. But Paul grew up with the Apple II, and he knows quite a bit about the internal workings of the Apple II, so I thought it would be helpful to talk to him and learn a bit more about what the Apple II is capable of you know, and how a program could possibly be converted to work on the Atari. So here's an interview with Paul Hagstrom where we get into some technical details about the Apple II in preparation for my emails with the Atari Age user Seamus, who actually did the port from Apple II to Atari. So here's my interview with Paul Hegstrom. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. I, I appreciate you talking about it and taking time. Um, so I guess a little bit of the Apple II history is that um, so there really wasn't much that came from the Apple I. The Apple I was, um, didn't really have much graphic capability, and then Waz sort of designed the Apple II with this it's, it's kind of his first attempt at graphics hardware. 
Uh, right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the 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 Apple II was kind of um, one of the ideas that was behind it was um, you know the ability to make a kind of a like a breakout game you know that, that would have color and um, you know sort of game controls and so forth and and so um, the Apple II was kind of designed from the beginning to be a, a sort of like color graphics machine. Uh, and the Apple One, the Apple One was just just a terminal. So you know, uh, characters marched forward in time. There was no <laughs> backing up. There was no pixels. There was no anything. It was just a terminal. And but it was the same. It sort of ran at the same speed, right? It's like one megahertz, six five zero two. And so he used sort of the same. Well, I don't know. He didn't use he didn't use the same ROMs or anything, right? It was all new hardware in the Apple Two. Um, I'm actually not sure how close the Apple One monitor. ROM is to uh, the Apple II. There may there may have been some things that were borrowed, but um, yeah, I mean, I think generally the the there's a small area in memory that that has the sort of basic routines for putting a character on the screen and uh, you know doing sort of very lo- you know kind of low level stuff. And uh, so I'm sure those are different between the Apple One and Apple II. Um, the Apple II, first of all, had a lot more space, I think, for this stuff, but. Uh, you know, so in in the Apple II, there's a there's a dedicated part of the addressable memory space, which is basically, um, I mean, it's basically from the uh, D thousand to the very top of the memory FFF. Um, that's ROM, and you know, so you okay. can't store stuff there, and and there are sort of specific entry points in those places. That's where Basic lives. That's where, um, uh, you know, the the things that, uh, you know, all the stuff that handles the screen and uh, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's about that's the same way in the Atari really. There was the so it's the top like what is that, sixteen K? Um was that eight K now text math math in my head now. Yeah. What is D? Uh, yeah, I mean D, I think yeah. F, so <laughs> Yeah, I think it I think it's it might like, actually be 12. twelve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, because C C thousand to FFFF in the Ataris is pretty much ROM. Mm-hmm. And then in the later Ataris when they had uh, like 64k of RAM, the XLs you could you could actually swap out that top 16k for RAM, and you'd lose your OS while you did that, but then you'd swap it back in. It's funny. Uh, it's actually a little bit funny to hear you say that because that's exactly the same way as it works on the Apple II. But but um, I, I had always sort of taken these machines to be quite different beasts. But yeah, um, huh. that same that same memory space um, from D1000 to FFFF um, in. So originally, Apple II started off with not much memory. I forget how low you could actually go, but but you know, a 48k machine is basically uh, as much as you can have with with all the RAM chips, uh, RAM sockets filled on the motherboard, and then you can add a card, which um, they call the 16k card. It brings you up to 64k, mm-hmm. um, but uh, so it basically does bank switching up in that top that top 12k, and it's the same thing. I mean, that's you know, so if you if you turn on that. RAM, uh, then you know all your access to Basic and the monitor ROM is gone until you turn it back off. So, and I guess the Apple III has more sophisticated bank switching stuff. Yeah, they they redesigned the memory a bit in, uh, you know, like how memory worked in that one. So that that's actually that's quite a bit more complex because they um, uh, they they were they were basically trying to make in the Apple III they were trying to make a lot more memory available. So, uh, 256k at least. Um, a third yeah. third party had a 512k card, but um, and the chip itself can only address 64k. That's the that's the like theoretical maximum. Right. Yeah. 16 bit 16 bits worth of address lines. I, I remember on the app on uh, Drop Three Inches, you shared a link 
I think it's called like bank switch razzle dazzle or something. It was a really interesting mm-hmm. sort of summary how they, you know, they manage page zero and they you can you can actually swap out different page zeros and how they address the you know the other banks of memory is yeah it was a really really interesting technical article which I'll I'll include a link to that in, in the show notes here just because it's you know fascinating for people interested in the six five zero two and what they could do. The, the problem, of course, is that the processor can only address sixty four k, so you have to right. do all kinds of weird you know you sort of like point a window at the part of RAM you want to look at um, uh, in order to do this. And and in order to sort of make this more seamless, they uh, this is actually sort of part of the motherboard, you know, so, so right. um, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of memory, memory, messing around with the memory just before the, like the processor, the processor does not know what's happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> it just says, I would like this, this, you know, address. And then, um, you know the memory subsystem figures out which address it's gonna it's gonna hand it. You know, so um, it's pretty complex. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I guess, I guess the sixteen-bit processors are still really expensive, relatively speaking. You know, in eighty eighty-one when they were designing these things, I mean, sixty-eight thousand was available, I think, but it was like, you know, certainly not to the price it would come down to. Right. Right. And and at least with the Apple three, it started. Development was going on that, you know, in 1980, and it was—I mean, it was—it was quite—it was early. Right. Um, so, I, well, so uh, in terms of the Apple II graphics itself, so there are three fundamental modes, which is uh, text and low-res graphics, uh, which is which is 40 by 48, um, and that has that has sort of in the abstract, it has uh, 16 color possibilities, um, and then. The high-res graphics, which has many fewer color possibilities, it's basically eight. Um, but that's even that's kind of stretching it, um, <laughs> and that's two eighty by one ninety two. <clears throat> so, the text mode is basically a, a forty characters by twenty four uh, screen. You have, you know, so so every every cell in that uh, twenty four by um, sorry by in that forty by twenty four square can be filled with one of uh, two hundred fifty six characters right so there's a character rom that tells you you know what the text is you can't change that that's just part of the rom um are there actually 256 like glyphs defined you have basically what what they set up in the in the in the character rom is a uh, normal you know so white text on black background character um inverse mm-hmm. which is the other way around so black text on white background um and then there's a flashing set which alternates between the two and oh i so, remember that yeah yeah that's right yeah so this is this is basically this is essentially why there's no lowercase i guess it's because <laughs> you know they've got the they've got the full character set in there three different times so uh that's that's as much as you get you know that's you run out of space um if you want to have also lowercase characters so um but yeah so essentially the there's a a memory there are two different spots that can be directly mapped to the text page um so there's a each of them are four 400 hex 400 uh, bytes long so um one of them starts at hex 400 and the the next the second one starts at hex 800 and you can sort of select which one it's going to take the the text from so you can you can say display page one or display page two and oh, that right. switch is basically instantaneous and so, that's you just like set a memory location to some value and it switches or yeah it's, it's even it's even a little more magical than that you um you don't have to set anything you just have to touch a particular memory location oh, so you just like essentially load from an address and it swaps it yeah 
Yeah. So there's one. Uh, so in fact, actually, I think a lot of people would use the uh, if you're really you know trying to go for speed. Um, uh, bit, I think the bit instruction is. I think that's a little bit faster than either load or store. Certainly, oh, it's faster like than store. Two cycles instead of three. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, at any rate, yeah, all you have to do is touch one of these. They're called soft switches in the in the Apple II oh, okay. parlance. Um, and so if you touch this page two soft switch, then it'll show. You, then it'll draw everything from the 800 block. And if you touch the page one, it'll draw everything from the from the 400 block. Oh, so um, it's so it's like a. There's essentially two two memory addresses and not one that just says flip. Okay. Right. Right. And so. It was probably worth going through all of that um, for the text page, just because now I can say for the graphics pages, uh, you know, it works the same way. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the you know the sort of funniness about particularly the high res graphics um, mapping, but um, the uh, the high res graphics itself is drawn in a similar way from a particularly a particular. Um, memory spot. Um, hex 2000 is the start of one page, and hex 4000 is the, is the start of a second page. Uh, and so, if I can do my hex math, that's two hex 2000 bytes, which is what 8192. Yep. Yep. Right. Um, so, at decimal 8192 is the beginning of uh, graphics page one, and at last 8192 bytes. Um, and then 16384 is the um, beginning of the second page. And that's so it would. Programs would then typically start at like six thousand and up, right? Yeah. See, you had you've already mentioned the um, uh, the drop three inches podcast, so I, I will I will um, point out one <laughs> thing that that uh, came up in one of the there was a talk by Don Williams that that um, he gave at this conference that was that we put on the the podcast. But at one point, you know, he sort of said in the middle, uh, he was talking about how this was just like the worst <laughs> that Apple II was the like worst architecture you could think of because um, they put you know, right where you would want to put your programs, you know, there's the graphics buffer, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so, um, so I mean, that's the trick is there, there are, there are a lot of kind of like places you want to stay away from. Uh, so 400, 400, you, you know, you don't want to put stuff there because that's going to show up on the text screen. <laughs> uh, and if you're going to use high-res graphics, you don't want to use 2000. Um, and, and so, so, Quite often, 800 is a pretty good place to start uh, because that's the second text screen, and you're not usually using that. Between 800 and hex 2000 would be sort of a safe spot. Yeah, yeah. And then um, if you, I guess, if you didn't want to use the second page of high res, you could start at hex 4000. 4, okay. Yeah. Um, I usually would start things at 6000 just just to be safe, and and, the, and there you're safe up until. Uh, gosh, how far up can you go? I think you can go about to nine. A before you start bumping into DOS. So, oh, and is is DOS resident in RAM? Or do you yeah, have to load DOS? Uh, basically, the the only thing that's that's uh, on an Apple II when you when you start it up, um, there's a really there's like a small um, two fifty six byte um, bootloader that will that can control the disk. Uh, and so it'll go to the disk. It'll read it. It'll read one sector off the disk, which basically gives it instructions to read the next, you know, bunch of sectors. And it, it sort of stages itself up until, uh, until it's loaded, you know, basically, I don't know what, it, how, how big it is, but, um, it's a, you know, a couple of thousand hex, uh, uh, bytes of DOS into the, that high area of RAM. Okay. Um, and, you know, so, the DOS is not the Atari actually has a has like a ROM cartridge or something, right? For for DOS? For DOS. 
or is that you not know, true? actually no you had to load dos off a disk and okay. uh, there was no the, the operating system only could it could bootstrap a disk it could bootstrap a cassette but it didn't have any sort of high level functions at all you had to load it off of you know some software and there were there are plenty of alternate doses written that would use the same sort of file format but you know different menus and different capabilities okay um yeah so that's that's basically the same and and uh better as well because you know anytime you put something in rom then it's then <laughs> you're, you're stuck, stuck. <laughs> uh, but yeah so you so uh you don't need dos there if you're not going to use it <laughs> but um so like, it, like like a, a bootable game would, would just bootstrap itself it load itself somehow and then and it had free reign up to the top of ram i guess Right, exactly. So, or or they would put some kind of weird modified DOS on there so that uh, you know it would look unfamiliar to any copying programs. So, talking about high res, um, so the two eighty by one ninety two resolution, and then in so it's all stored in essentially hex two thousand worth of bytes, so eighty one ninety two bytes. Right. Um, but then I was reading there's like a there's like memory holes, so it uses it uses forty bytes per line, but and then there's the, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can explain that that sort of like. Actually, maybe let me let me before we before we get to the, I want to bootstrap my way up to the high res screen um, from the from the other modes uh, just because they're slightly smaller and easier to grasp. Sure, yeah, that sounds but, good. Um, so on the on the text screen, um, as I was saying before, there it it. Um, directly takes this chunk of memory and just puts it on the screen and the processor is not involved in doing that it's just you know sort of in between cycles of the of the processor um the video hardware grabs that part of memory and puts it on the screen uh so whatever whatever you put in in that, those memory spaces gets immediately mapped to the screen uh and so the way it's actually laid out is and and I think the, the part of the reasons for it being laid out this way just has to do with you know it's a, it saved a chip somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> but well, Waz is sort of famous for that, right? <laughs> right. Um, but uh, so the first the first forty the first forty characters are predictably you know starting at, at hex four hundred and the next forty bytes. Um, the forty first byte out um, turns out to be about like a third of the way down the screen on the left. Um, you know, so so even on the text screen, the lines are kind of. Um, interleaved in that way yeah, so there's at the i think what i think we figured this out once before but the uh um at the end of you know so once you've gone through 40 40 40 so 120 um bytes you know which represents three text lines uh then there's kind of like an eight bit eight byte um space where you know you can put stuff in that space but it's not going to show up on the screen anywhere it's not mapped anywhere on the on the text page um, i've called like a hole is that right just a... it is it's essentially it is it's sort of it's sort of like the lower third of the screen has an extra eight characters off to the right that that just aren't visible mm-hmm. um a little like like overscan on a television set or something yeah. um it's it's never visible so so that's one that's a, a possibly safe place to put stuff as long as you have just are careful that you know it doesn't end up getting scrolled <laughs> or something, <laughs> you know, like you don't you, want your code there being scrolled, at, uh, you know, onto some other part of the page, or you don't blank the whole 400 hex bytes, you know, to zero to clear the screen or something, and forget right. about those little holes. Right. So as long as you're careful about how to use them, um, uh, you, you know, the, the, but it's sort of sort of notionally it is there um, right on the uh, sort of off the lower right edge of the screen. Um, now, uh, 
the low res graphics screen shares that same memory space, and so I'd, I'd said that it was um, forty by forty eight, um, and that's so that's same horizontal resolution, exactly double the vertical resolution, and that's just because um, basically each byte can re- it represents two two uh, little I would I say little they're actually pretty large pixels <laughs> you know so um, they're little blocks um, there's a they're stacked one on top of each other and they occupy the same space that a single text character would <clears throat> so right okay so, so each, like like the with the with the high four bits control like the upper half of the block and the low four bits would be the lower half of the block or was it swapped or I don't know I don't remember <laughs> actually <laughs> sorry um, I didn't mean to put you on the spot <laughs> uh yeah, I'm not sure actually which which one it is. Um, uh, my my first guess was to say that the you know the first the most significant bits were the top block, but um, I could be wrong. I don't know. Um, it's I mean it would it would be easy to just check I suppose, <laughs> but um, oh, but wait, wait, it, feedback email. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Yeah, it's always good actually to just say something intentionally wrong to draw everyone's <laughs> attention to that, so everyone will complain about that and miss all the other stuff that got that was wrong. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but um, so we're fishing for email, right? But the yeah, so the um uh that same that same four hundred x four hundred bytes um is used both for low res graphics and for um text and there's you know similarly to the way you switch between page one and page two, um you can switch between um text mode or graphics mode, you know, lower-res graphics mode, to, to sort of say how that chunk of memory is going to be mapped. Oh, right, um, okay. And then there's one uh, one other kind of like sub-mode uh, that, that can have uh, lower-res graphics on the top, and then the lower four um, lines of text are still text. Um, oh, right, yeah. For like, um, you know, a little game or something where you have graphics on the top of the screen and then little... And- a couple lines on the bottom for entering commands or whatever. I remember, what was it, like, Lemonade Stand, I think? I think that used low-res graphics. And the- yep. Yeah, so if you, if you think about Lemonade Stand, you can, sort of, you can sort of imagine the size of these blocks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like building, building stuff out of Legos, you know. Yeah. Um, but you did have you did have more colors available. So yeah, so you you know each each four bits represents the color of of one of those half blocks, and uh, so you have in principle sixteen colors. Um, there are so zero is black and F is white, um, and then you know there's a bunch of other colors in between. One one um, kind of annoying thing is that there's there's two grays, uh, which are they're essentially indistinguishable from one another. I think they're. I think if you put them right next to each other, you might be able to tell that they were different, but um, but they're both basically the same. Otherwise, the same gray. Hmm. So, not not you know. I guess maybe more like fifteen colors. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so uh, now uh, now we can now we can move to high res because basically it's just like it's just, it's it's pretty much like the that text area um except it's just on a much bigger scale so um and and instead of instead of having each pixel be um you know having four bits define each pixel um it's basically just one bit per pixel so all of the color information that you get is positional at that point yeah so that's the that's kind of the artifacting i guess is the but i but it's 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 more interesting than that because they're they're like two palettes is that right yeah, so um, I I hadn't realized this until we started talking about this, um, uh, you know, sort of discussing the the topic. But um, 
I guess the you know the Atari also has the same kind of at least in one of the modes this kind of positioning scheme. But yeah, it's it's higher as mode is, is similar, although it's well, yeah, it's 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 similar. It's definitely yeah. right now. So basically, the way it works is that you can sort of you can turn on a dot or turn it off a dot, and you know, so a bit a one bit um, is a lit pixel. The way the color works is that if you if you put a pixel uh, in an odd column all by itself, it'll either be green or red. So when I say all by itself, I mean there's no adjacent pixels that are on. Right. Um, whether it's green or red depends on um, essentially which so yeah which palette you choose, um, and the palette choice is um, made many many times on the screen like every 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 group of a specific seven pixels can have uh, one of these two palettes that would make either uh, red or green out of an odd pixel um, and then the even pixel would be either purple or blue depending on which palette it's in so green and purple go together and red and blue go together um, which is why Loadrunner is all red and blue <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, because it's it's all using that one that one palette. So, yeah, and when you when you actually go down and look at the bit level, you have this sort of like odd even color situation where um, you know odd is one color, even is another color, two together is white, um, and then you know off is black. Now, um, everyone who deals with this uh, finds it crazy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's uh, 280 dots across, um, and that is 40 groups of seven. Uh, if you divide it out, so um, so 40 bytes per line, essentially. Yeah, uh, and you know, so it's the same the same kind of structure as the text page. Um, essentially, every every seven pixels on the screen uh, is you know the bit pattern for the byte that corresponds to that, and then the the most significant bit. Um, is the thing that determines whether it's going to be red and blue or green and purple, you know which which palette it is, and so um, you can you can make that choice in every every group of seven. So you can you can never, you know, in the fir- within with the first seven pixels, you know, from zero to six, you you can either have them be in one palette or the other. You can never have those two in a different palette. From you know like, oh, like right yeah. Th- that group is always controlled by the single bit, the most significant bit. Uh, and then the next one, you know, this has its own bit. So, okay. Yeah. So, and then, so that means if there's two, if there's two bytes next to each other that are using a different palette. So, well, I guess, and I guess that means that the sort of the bits are reversed in the adjacent bytes then. Yeah. So, um, the right okay so the the way the the um bits map to the screen on the on the high res screen at least um they're so they're crazy in a couple of different ways first of all <laughs> um you know they go in groups of 7 so uh if you have a if you put a like a 0 1 in the first two bytes of high res space the the first one is going to wind up being um i think purple and the second one is going to wind up being green because uh it's gonna it's gonna turn out that the the pixel you turned on in the first byte was in a in an even row um, column and in the second one was in an odd column, which brings me to another thing that's crazy about the Apple uh, <laughs> graphics, which is that um, not only are these bits organized in in groups of seven, but uh, it turns out that the most significant bit is the one that's furthest to the right, 
when it gets displayed. So it's the pixel that you turn on with the, the least significant bit one, um, is actually the left. It's the one in column zero. Uh, and then if you change it to two, um, then you'll light up the one in column one. And you change it to four, you'll light up the one in column three. Um, and so when you normally, when you picture a, a bite, the bits of a byte, um, it's let, you know, the most significant bit is on the far left. And then you sort of count down until you get to the ones part. You know, that's just the way people write numbers usually. Um, but, but, uh, that's the exact opposite of the way they get mapped to the, to the screen. So, um, I, I actually, I was curious about that. And so I tried the Atari to see what that does. And it's, it's what you would think, you know, so the, the most significant bit is actually pixel zero and then, uh, two to the sixth is pixel one. And then, so mm-hmm. you know, bit value one is actually, you know, the eighth pixel. Right. So there's, there's, um, so on the Apple, you have to do, uh, a lot of convoluted, you know, kind of like gymnastics to get things to, it's, it's, it's highly nonlinear in many ways. I mean, so, <laughs> so first of all, there's this, you know, the, the, um, the kind of reversedness of the bits within each byte. Um, and then you have, and so then you have 40 bytes across. Um, and then just like on the text page, once, once you, um, uh, go off the right edge, uh, you know, so you, you try to write in the 41st bit, uh, you're going to wind up, uh, you know, again, shifted partway down the screen. So, um, so the, the 41st byte is not just under the first one. Um, it's in fact quite a ways down the screen <laughs> from the first one. Um, and then once, you know, after you've sort of gone through uh, a bunch of these iterations, then, uh, it returns again to the, um, you know, to the second line in the screen. Um, and so if you, and this actually is very easy to see. Um, I'm, I'm sure anyone who's actually seen a, an Apple program load from disk or, or, you know, um, you know, had any experience at all with, with Apple twos would, would probably have seen at some point this effect where, um, the, a graphic screen will load in and kind of like a, uh, blinds pattern, you know? So, yeah, I certainly remember that. Yeah. Um, and that's just basically that's filling up the memory sequentially. I mean, you know, so that's, um, uh, you know, that's, that's the way that the memory space is organized. Yeah, a very common thing for people to do when they were writing games and things would be to to sort of pre-compute um, the 192 values that would be that would correspond to the um, you know the starting point of each line on the high-res screen. So that then you know after that you could just say you know for, I want to I want to put my value in at the byte that's at that starting point uh, plus eight or something like that you know to put it in the you know somewhere in the eighth byte. Yeah. Um, so that was one trick that people would do. Uh, the other thing, uh, so, so, uh, we, you know, ultimately we're, we're, we're sort of talking about sabotage here in a way, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, so I actually did just take a look at it, uh, a little, just a little bit ago and I re, it turns out I was not remembering correctly, uh, you know, it's sort of the way, it, the way it worked. I think, um, uh, I had, I had in my mind accused it of, uh, having a, a sort of flicker that I didn't see. Um, but there, there, there is, um, there's a way that you can avoid flickering. You know, so, so basically the, the biggest problem is that when you're trying to draw something that's moving, uh, you have to draw it and then you have to undraw it and you have to draw it in the new place. And, yeah. uh, if you, if you ever use an emulator and try to look at a game on the, on the Apple II, um, in, in a lot, you know, depending, depending on what the game is, but, uh, you often can find that if you try to take a screen capture of it, um, half your, you know, half your 
guys missing or something because it just you know you it caught you caught it just at that point where it's drawn half of it and not the rest of it. Oh uh, right, yeah, because there's there's no real there's no real sinking to the vertical blank, I guess. That's the sophisticated way to do this. Um, the you know the, if the if the so the way the the and maybe maybe Atari people are are actually much more familiar with this. This was kind of new news to me uh, at a certain point while I was. Uh, Working with the Apple because just because you know I, I never had any idea how monitors and televisions worked, but um, <laughs> you know the, this way you want to do something smoothly is to make all of your changes to the video memory during that vertical blank, so that mm-hmm. um, so essentially the, the what happens if you don't and and the Apple has no way of sensing when the vertical blank is or at least no really reliable way of doing that up until one of the in some of the later models so um the problem is then essentially if you if you switch out the you know change the video display somehow when the scan light when the um, beam is just part way down um and actually the simplest way to to even imagine this is just imagine Again, I said that we had two two graphics pages. So, fill graphics page one with green and graphics page two with purple, right? Um, yeah. And then uh, all you have to do is just touch this one memory location to to kind of switch back and forth between the two. And you know, you have a very very high probability of uh, switching to page you know, like switching from page one to page two while the scan line is you know sort of while the gun is sort of halfway down the screen. Um, and so then what you see momentarily um, is a frame that has at the top green and at the bottom purple, and if and it's just sort of like tearing at some random spot in the middle. Yeah. And you know that looks ugly, <laughs> and, and it's very distracting when you're when you're sort of when you're actually trying to um, uh, you know whatever play the play a game or something. But the Apple really did not have control over that. Um, so there, there was there's a really interesting article um, by uh, Bob Bishop in Soft Talk called uh, something like "Have an Apple Split." I think if you if you were <laughs> Uh, it's easy to find on the on the um, internet, but uh, and that's that's basically a, a, a really very um, easy. Uh, it's it's a very it's a nice article that gives you uh, kind of an overview of how scanning works and a specific trick that you can do on older Apple IIs to time things so that you can uh, you can sort of make use of the of the um, the you know the sort of knowledge of where the beam is in order to get some interesting graphics effects. But it's uh, the problem is that you have to take, you know, the whole machine has to be participating in this, in this, you know, trying to sense when the, when the vertical blank is. So, so you're really, you're like cycle counting, kind of doing like a 2600 kernel or something where you're really, you know, actively keeping track of what you're doing in order to figure out what, what time it is essentially. Right, exactly. And you, you must not be interrupted by anything or anything <laughs> like that. I mean, because it's it basically um, the, uh, his program sort of, he works out. It's it's actually super clever. I'm I'm uh, I, I was completely in awe of this article when I first read it. But um, anyway, yeah. So uh, where was I going with this? I think I started with uh, I started <laughs> thinking. Oh yeah. So I was um, I my memory of sabotage was that it um, flickered, but I, when I looked at it, it didn't flicker. And and the way it must be the way almost all things that don't flicker manage not to flicker is that they make use of this this page flipping technique which is basically to draw um to draw on the page that's not displayed and then as soon as you're finished drawing then switch the view to that page and then um continue your drawing on the page that is now not displayed right yeah it still seems like though if you didn't flip it in the right spot you'd still get a tearing effect yeah and that's true i think um so with 
with sabotage i mean with with a lot of games but sabotage too um sabotage is mostly static i guess it's a black background and there's a lot of stuff you know the the turret doesn't move and or the the base of the turret doesn't move and stuff like that so maybe you would you just wouldn't notice the tearing yeah and that's that's almost certainly what's what's um saving it you know the the tearing would be very very quick and and there's almost no place that you could see it you know so yeah, yeah. you might you might see you know like a little bit of a problem in like one of the guys that are falling from the from the um you know falling through the sky or whatever but um and in fact actually there's a lot of just like single pixel um debris yeah. and things like that 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 uh you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to see any of that but yeah i think i think uh, otherwise but a game like load runner might be much much more um affected well you know that's a lot of static background too isn't it huh interesting yeah, yeah that's um I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of static uh, stuff in these games. If you, I'm just trying to think. I mean, uh, almost anything that that isn't. So there there was a game uh, on the Apple II called the Bilestowed. Um, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about that game. Yeah, it. Um, so, and and that, you know that's a sort of interesting story in and of itself because um, they sold almost no copies of it. You know uh, that that was one that was one that that almost. I mean, that sort of it was everywhere exactly yeah because i mean you know whatever it was it was the the demographic was you know it's a two-player game and you try to to kill each other um it's impressive in a way because it's um it is really it's a lot of full motion i mean like there's stuff on the ground that's moving um all your you know you you, both players are moving um but at the same time it is so slow It's like really slow. It becomes very hard to control because, um, because, really, I mean, that's it's it's trying to redraw the entire screen, you know, uh, every time. Um, whereas something like sabotage, you know, they're really the only nothing, almost nothing changes. You know, the, you, like the angle of your gun changes, um, and you know the little helicopters that run across the top of the screen. Um, but so that you can get away with not actually changing many pixels from frame to frame. Right. Yeah. You're. Just, you're- you can probably you know, just you know blank the space of the helicopter, move it over, and then draw it again, and or XOR or whatever you know whatever you have to do to blast the bits out there. That was one of the things that was kind of impressive, uh, impressive about uh, Karataka, too. Uh, that it was laid out in such a way that that it looked like things were happening, and that you had like mountains moving in different, you know, the, like different layers and things like that. Um, but it mm-hmm. was still, it was still in the horizontal way it was set up actually very little ever needed to be redrawn you know so very minimal hints of motion and things like that um that still looked looked nice yeah. but um or sort of enough to suggest more motion than they're actually doing right um yeah that's an impressive game but yeah anyway so uh you know i think there there are a lot of there's a lot of little hurdles that you have to um get over one thing that I did want to say about the, uh, uh, you know, like a technique you can use on the high-res screen is that, um, so if you have if you have something like a seven, let's say a seven-pixel wide thing that you want to draw, and um, and you want to be able to draw it at sort of any arbitrary horizontal location, you, still often in order to get the speed, you would pre-compute stuff. You know, you would you would um, basically make seven different copies of your of your you know icon or shape or whatever uh one for each of the each of the possible horizontal um classes it could be in you know so is, is right. it in a um you know is it in the first bit of a byte or a second or third or fourth and then the other thing that this allowed you to do um is 
there's no there's no you know particular reason that it would have to be exactly the same in each of those seven positions so if you want to uh if you want to animate something like a guy walking or something like this um that's it's it's almost a way to do this for free uh because you know if if you know that the the shape is going to be moving horizontally you know one pixel at a time you have seven f- animation frames um yeah. that you got to shift it anyway you might as well make him move around right exactly yeah the one other thing i wanted to try to get in here when we were uh, talking about the high-res screen was uh, just a- about like the uh, the word the uh, yeah the word artifact and artifacting you know comes up a lot in discussing the you know the graphics on the the Apple II and one one way you know sort of one aspect of one thing that that used as word is used for uh, is you know for this positioning this color positioning you know so you have green on odd and purple on even and so forth um, right. But uh, you know, in sort of, in sort of terms of of like you know, compression artifacts and that kind of artifact. There's also the, there's also an effect that you can see sometimes um, that has to do with the fact that that uh, the palette can only change once once per byte, once per seven bits. Uh, so the one of the most kind of obvious cases that I've seen of this, uh, where where it always looked kind of wrong to me, um, is this game Apple Panic. Um, uh, a lot of times the game would be kind of uh, strategically organized so that uh, it was it never sort of came up uh, th- this this possible palette clash where you know you you wanted to draw red next to green um, and you, it's perfectly possible to draw red next to green as long as they're in actually different bytes <laughs> you know they can they, the pixels can be right near each other um, but they have to be in different bytes uh, if they're in the same byte then it, they both have to be green or both have to be red so um, <laughs> What ended up happening, so with Apple Panic, um, the Apple Panic is kind of like a platform game. It's it's actually quite a bit like Load Runner, um, where uh, there are these little apples that are chasing you around. And uh, <laughs> and the, so in a in a daring move, I guess, um, the, the little apples are red, uh, but they have little green bits on them. You know, so those are two different palettes already. Uh, and the platforms are generally green uh, that you that you would walk around on. And uh, and then there are ladders connecting the levels. And so basically, whenever one of these red apples gets near uh, near like some of the green bricks, uh, then, you know, some of the bricks just turn red because because they're um, yeah, the the palette change uh, we had to have in, in order to have the little red apple be red um, it had to be in the red palette and that bleeds over to you know some of the pixels that are just off to its right so um, there's a really kind of obvious effect if you're if you're playing this game in color uh, that you know the apples affect you know the the, the color of the bricks that they're passing next to and um, there's a couple other things that that do that um, which you know so it's it's very noticeable uh, and and that's a direct result of this particular um, way that palette switching happens so that, yeah, that design design decision yeah um, I as I say I think it looks to me like it's a mistake um, uh, there was, so, uh, I did notice, you know, cause some time ago, uh, that I, I forget exactly why I was looking for this. I think it's possible that the cartridge came up on eBay or something. And I went and, uh, saw, uh, a YouTube video of, of the Apple panic being played on a Vic 20. And I was surprised to see that the, you know, the, basically the same, it's not exactly, not actually exactly the same, but basically the same kind of artifacting happens there. Um, and my original thought was just that, 
Well, that's kind of ridiculous. They, they took this, which was <laughs> basically an error in the Apple II game, and then they transferred it over in the port. Um, it's a faith, faithful port, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but it, it could actually be, I mean, um, I, don't, I know very little about the VIC-20 um, graphics organization, and it could be that, that, in fact, it's actually, you know, roughly the same reason. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not that they translated this weird glitch, but that, in fact, actually this glitch affects the VIC-20 as well. Yeah, and I, I know very little about the VIC-20, and I, I know... It's small about more about the Commodore 64 and the the Commodore 64. I think, if I remember this right, had two separate planes. Like one plane um, selected the color palette to use, and the other plane was actually the bitmap field. Mm. And so, but the, the the plane that selected the color palette affected like eight pixels. So essentially, the same sort of deal. You know, instead of having one bit affect the seven pixels and the in the Apple, it had one one bit in a different plane would affect eight pixels on. So, like, so there are like two different memory fields, you know, rectangular memory grids. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know what mail. Have to have Earl on and do a uh, Commodore sixty four graphics primer. Yeah, but but I think there's it's, it's in the Vic the Vic chip. I think in the Commodore sixty four was an extension of the Vic chip in the Vic twenty. So maybe that's maybe that's the reason. I don't know. Yeah, it's um, the Commodore sixty four had to also. I mean, the uh, the sprite setup in the Commodore sixty four was pretty pretty nice. I think they were like twenty four bits wide, and they could be multicolored. And, yeah, and it was very, you know, part of the hardware control. You know that that. Um, right. I, I mean, I remember being sort of, uh, I don't know, quite impressed that that I could make some little, you know, whatever, some dumb dumb little game uh, with just sprites in BASIC that actually. Like I, I could tell that because the Apple II didn't have sprites, there's just no way. You know, like you, you could to do something like this in Basic would just be not not even feasible. Um, and uh, you know, I guess so. The Atari, I guess, has has these. You know, the the players and the missiles, um, which are sort of in the you know in the same the same ballpark as this eponymous podcast name. Right, exactly. That's the, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, similar. It's it's they're only eight bits wide, but they can be the height of the screen, and they're limited to a single color. Unless you overlay players, and then you can get multiple colors. Yeah, it would yeah, be fun to actually, you know, to to create a game and then try yourself to port it to all these different um, platforms, just to see, you know, what what challenges you would face. Um, <laughs> well, as we as we're we're going to see in this episode, that uh, you can take an Apple game and port it to the Atari. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I mean, you know, so uh, after having talked about all the all the um, you know sort of hoops that one must jump through, uh, and the fact that on the on the Apple it's almost nothing is done for you, right? I mean, like basically, um, it's up to you to get the bits in the place where the video yeah. is going to pick it up, you know. And um, so with even even you know even with the independently drivable um, player missile graphics stuff, that can go a long way to, toward um, you know sort of automating things. So if you're trying to take an Atari game that used those. And port it to the Apple. Um, the thing is, that, then that, uh, on the Apple side, the 6502 is going to have to do a lot of that work. You know, there's right. no there's no other processor to to sort of hand it off to. So um, I think there is there. It is not um, it is not entirely false <laughs> to say that uh, there is kind of like a one a one directional path here. <laughs> um, uh, well, and, yeah. you know, the Atari was running at 1.79 megahertz, which is and the Apple's like one point. Such a 1.0, right? Yeah, uh, one and one and a one and change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, 
Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean that's essentially um, that was unchanged since the Apple One. <laughs> you know that it was <laughs> and it was basically unchanged all the way. I mean you can you could buy accelerators and things, but the the base clock speed on the on the Apple Two throughout was one megahertz until you got to um the the 2gs was a little bit more um and the 2c plus had a a, you know the 2c plus was also a bit more but um uh otherwise you know all the 2e's and and the the main what people usually think of as the apple II uh is just a one as a one megahertz machine throughout yeah, well, it's not, and it's not entirely fair to call the Atari 1.79 because the uh, the Antic processor did steal time away from the CPU because they they accessed the same memory and they couldn't access the same memory at the same time. So they, the Antic had to turn off the 6502 in order for it to read the displayless stuff and generate the display. Ah, well, okay. Well, then that, that actually probably is almost again we find uh, surprisingly it's actually quite a bit like the Apple II then because um, that's the way that Apple II worked as well that there's a um, sort of in between those you know one megahertz timed cycles was the video access so um, if you're counting if you're counting the video access in in uh, here I mean like so the actual processor cycle time was only one megahertz but there were things happening at uh, you know sort of at a, at a clock of two megahertz. Okay, so yeah, maybe they weren't all that different yeah. then. What did you say? One one nine seven was what? One point seven nine in NTSC and it's one point seven seven in PAL. Yeah. Okay. To sync up with the um, fifty hertz instead of sixty hertz. Yeah, it's um, uh, I used to know this better than I do, but um, but there there is there is kind of like an interleaving, um, the the um memory chips in. Yeah, in the Apple II and probably probably the Atari as well, um, were dynamic RAM, and so one of the things that that means is just that it needs to um, continually be refreshed, uh, or else it's, it loses its memory. You know, so um, there has to be a sort of like a pulse that goes through it to to kind of like reset the the RAM value. And so um, on the Apple II, the um, the processor goes you know, goes through um, once, and then the video goes through in a second sweep um and they happen often enough that so, so that two megahertz timing is enough to keep the ram from forgetting itself okay but, so another, another one of was a sort of memory saving or a chip saving ideas yeah i think it was uh, it was fairly uh, from what i understand it was fairly clever um i almost don't really even <laughs> understand the um you know the design process enough to to appreciate it but uh, everybody says it's it's a pretty clever way to do it so <laughs> Yeah, thanks for all the info. And it it is surprising to to realize that really the machines are quite a bit more similar maybe than than I thought. Yeah, anyway. definitely. I, I I am having I'm having the same experience. Uh, you know, he, hearing about the the positional colors on the on the uh, Atari and same types of options in gra- graphics mode. The Atari has a, a little bit more of a uh, you know some some nice additional built-in processing that can be you know handled by a different processor and stuff but uh it is a bit surprising how how similar they are and yet how ignorant at least i was of the of the other but um yeah well you know each system you get involved in one system and you you can do a deep dive in that system and still not know everything you know it is funny because the uh i don't remember atari being you know as much a participant in this but certainly Commodore and Apple were, you know, at war, basically, uh, you know, n- I mean, not the companies, but the, you know, the, whatever, the kids in junior high that used them. The you know, users, yeah, yeah, we were there, we were kind of the third party, kind of chucking stuff from the sidelines, but, you know. But the the funny thing is, you know, uh, at, when you just go deep into the machine, you know, the same, <laughs> pretty much the same assembly code runs in each of them. 
Right. Yeah. It's all six five zero two, and you know, I, I, again, as we'll see in this and the rest of this episode, uh, you know, a lot of the code for sabotage ran unchanged on yep. the Atari. Yep. And sabotage, I should, I should say, by the, by the way, I didn't. Um, I don't think I actually mentioned this, but um, I played that a lot. It was um, that was yeah. one of the first games I ever had, and it. it um, yeah, me too. It's really it's surprisingly fun. It's it's kind of mean. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, you're violating the Geneva Convention. Yeah. It's, uh, but. Um, yeah, no, it was. I was. I was always very impressed by it, and um, you know, uh, it. I, I'm sure it had a lot of effect on the games that came after it too. You know, the hel- helicopters and choplifter looked like they were practically straight out of this. Actually, in fact, so yes, no, it's a, it's a neat topic. Yeah, that was. Um, I, I, you know, I remember this game, and and I just thought about, well, maybe I, maybe I can write a game like this myself, and actually, you know, try to do that back, you know, when I was a. a a teenager and stuff, and you never got, you just never completed it. And then kind of, you know, forgot about it, and you get out of the retro thing, and I get back into it, and discover that this, that somebody actually ported the Apple II code to the Atari. I was, I was stunned. So, and I've got the, track down the guy, and then got a nice story to talk about. So, it'll be fun. Well, I look forward to hearing, you know, the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, thanks, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for coming on. I've learned a lot. It's, uh, it's been fun talking. Sure. So. Thanks for having me. So it's interesting that really the Apple II was was pretty similar. I mean, similar in a lot of ways, more so than I thought. I mean, the, the Atari was certainly more flexible in the way it did a lot of things, which I guess is why this is kind of a one-way conversion. I mean, really, you can talk about converting an Apple II program directly to the Atari because they just didn't have a lot of you know specialized hardware. There wasn't there weren't sprites. They, there was no equivalent to the Antic. They didn't have specialized sound hardware, at least not built in. I mean, the thing about the Apple II is it, it was expandable and they had all these slots, and so you could upgrade the graphics, you could upgrade the sound, but it was not standard. So yeah, I remember Sabotage, and so I surfed around Atari Age one day. This was well before I thought about the podcast, and I found this article. It's the story behind Sabotage. I saw, and I saw this game, I said, I remember a game called Sabotage, and I looked down the article, and it was it. It was this Sabotage running on the Atari. So Atari Age user Seamus had described sort of the process. He gave an overview of of how he did this. He said he thought it was a really neat game. It seemed just a little unfair to him that the Apple guys got such a cool game and nothing even remotely comparable on the Atari. So he decided right there and then he was going to convert it to the Atari. After all, he said, other straight Apple ports had been done. How hard could it be? So he got his Apple friend to get him a printout and got the Apple II reference manual and got the ROM monitor. So he loaded the address and dumped the entire object code. So these are the bytes, the hex bytes, dumped them to a, a printer and then took the home and typed in the hex bytes by hand, he said, into a crude hex editor on his Atari 800 that he made just for the purpose. He said, after a while, he had a binary file, presumably identical to the one on his friend's Apple II, and then tweaked it to make it run. Constructed a display list to mimic the Apple II's high-res memory layout, fixed some of the shape tables to have different consistent colors, changed some of the hardware registers like keyboard input, and was amazed to f- that when he finished, that it worked. Once it was in a working state, he posted it to the Edge of Reality BBS, and the rest is history. So when I read that, I thought, wow, that's amazing. And it's probably glosses over a whole bunch of steps in there. So I sent, sent him a private message and said if he'd be interested in sharing more information about this. My first thought though was the, is he had to do some really in-depth changing of the code to get it to run on the different resolutions of the screen. And, and he said that wasn't the case. He said, uh, when we do a port from the Apple II to the Atari, we don't really have to be worried all that much about what goes inside on the game itself, we can treat the internals like a black box and, you know, sort of does its thing and generates a display and sound. We can do this because the processor is the same and the generic machine code executing on one is going to pretty much execute the same way on the other. 
as long as the game code doesn't utilize things like bank switching or the other things that can't really be translated to the Atari easily, we don't really have to concern ourselves with what's inside all that much. He goes on, Now I have to say that the old Apple II had wonderful documentation, and the Apple company of that time really did a great job in that up department, unlike Atari, unfortunately. And in that documentation, the Apple II Red Book, he thought, they described the mechanism and rationale for the odd memory arrangement of the high-risk screen. But despite its odd layout, it has the same number of bytes per scan line as the Atari Mode F, but it only displays 7 of the 8 bits per line, so it's 280 dots of horizontal resolution. 40 bytes and 7 pixels per byte is 280, so it uses the high bit to create extra colors. On the Atari, the standard playfield width of Mode F is 320 dots, but you know it still uses 40 bytes per line, so it's 320 pixels. So there are a few things to notice here. First, the Atari screen is wider than the Apple II screen by 40 dots, and as a consequence, the display on the Atari will look slightly wider than the same screen display on the Apple II. However, because this is, these extra dots are distributed evenly across the screen on the Atari, it is, isn't as noticeable as one would think. Also, the way the Apple II displays those bits on the screen is exactly the opposite of how the Atari does it. Apple's bit 1 is on the left, while Atari's bit 1 is on the right. And as we heard from uh, talking with Paul Hagstrom, yeah, that, there's a, a bunch of differences about the graphic screen. So Seamus goes on. So with all these things against us, how do we proceed? Luckily for us, the Atari is a very flexible machine, much more so than the poor Apple II, and we can leverage that flexibility to our advantage. The antique chip in the Atari doesn't care in memory where it has to fetch from, and we can tell it to fetch from random addresses on every line if we want to. In the case of the Apple II high-res screen, we can construct a display list to mimic the Apple II's strange memory layout, and this way we can shunt all the heavy lifting to the antic, and it will willingly oblige. So with that problem out of the way, we're left with a problem of, of 7 bits versus 8 bits, and in reverse order. And really, the only thing to do is just dive into the graphics and fix them bit by bit. Most Apple II games use pre-shifted images to display their graphics, and sabotage is no exception. Usually they also have 7 shapes per object in order to display it at any pixel location desired. So we have to go through the binary looking for these objects and reversing their bits. So after doing that, if you run the game like this, Every eighth column would never get turned on, so it looks like we're playing behind a set of vertical black bars. Also, we notice the colors created by the artifacting alternate on some of the shapes. So what's wrong, and how do we fix this disaster? As it turns out, the side effect of having only 7 bits per byte displayed on the Apple II means that we end up with too little information when we try to display the same data on our Atari. So we have to do some further work. So for each shape that is wider than 1 byte, which is most of them, you have to shift the bits so that they look right on an 8 pixel per byte screen. Either have to add extra data to fill in the missing columns, or in a multi-byte shape, shift the bits over to fill it in. The other thing to keep in mind is on the Apple II display, we only need 7 shifted copies of our shape in order to display them in any given x-coordinate, but on the Atari we would need 8. So for the Atari, we need to construct one extra shifted shape for each object in, in the game, and in practice this turns out to be much more work than it's worth. So as a consequence, we end up with one less shape than we need to make things look as smooth as they are in the Apple II. So with animations that move the object one dot at a time across the screen, every seventh to eighth dot transition will move two dots instead of one. But unless we're looking for it, we don't really notice it. Because the combination of the speed of movement plus the small size and all the other stuff that's going on make it mostly unnoticeable. So as an aside, so now that you've heard about that, and you play this game on the Atari, check out the motion of the little paratrooper guys on the ground when they move to blow up your turret. And you can definitely see this jump in animation. So back to Seamus. 
As far as collision detection and other internal things to a game like this are concerned, it's all internal, and we can just treat it like a black box that does its thing and generates display and sound. Because I had thought, you know, asking him about this stuff, I had thought that you'd have to do something like you'd have to check the graphics RAM or something, you know, because you don't have player missile graphics collisions in, on the Apple. So I was thinking you have to go dive much deeper into the code and, you know, write your own sort of code to do this. But he's really just treating it as a black box, and it works. Back to Seamus again. When it comes to stuff like page flipping, which the Apple II has, you know, two high-res pages, you can simulate this mechanism by using two display lists, but in the case of Sabotage, it just it doesn't use page flipping. It just draws everything on one screen. When it comes to sound, fortunately for us, sound creation on the Apple II is almost directly translatable to the Atari without a whole lot of extra effort. The Apple only has an internal speaker that can generate clicks, not the dedicated sound chip that the Atari does. And as it turns out, the Atari has almost identical hardware to generate the key click sounds. So all we have to do is find references to the original code that accesses the Apple II speaker and replace them to the address of the Atari speaker. When it comes to input, and specifically the paddle input, as seen by the Apple, the Apple II's hardware interface is far more primitive than what we find on the Atari. On the, on the Apple, the program is expected to pull the paddle port at regular intervals in order to determine when it's turned, while on the Atari, that's all built into the Pokechip. So while it's theoretically possible to remove the polling from the code and somehow can scale the numbers so they can work with the Atari, that was not done in this Atari conversion of Sabotage. So if we can't use the paddles, we're left with the keyboard, and fortunately for us, as in the case of the Apple II speaker, the keyboard hardware is very similar, and all we have to do is search for the hardware location of the keyboard code and exchange it for the location in the Atari. And, of course, change the keyboard scan codes. So after converting the graphics, the keyboard input, and the sound and treating everything else like a black box. Essentially, that was it. And Seamus said, and that's how it's done. See, I, f- I find this just really amazing. I thought we'd have to go much further into the depths of the code to get it to work. And if you were converting the other way around, if you were converting from the Atari to the Apple, you would, because you'd have to somehow create routines on the 6502 to simulate what's being done with the player missile graphics, or and you'd probably have to throw away the sound and use your own sound. By going from the Apple II to the Atari, where the Apple II hardware you know, designed at least two years prior, was still much more simple than the Atari hardware and didn't have those coprocessors. So it's nice that Apple Computer Company didn't treat the internals as a state secret, which sort of, which Atari did. And, you know, it's kind of a recurring theme in the podcast is one of the pillars of the defeat of Atari in the 8-bit wars. Without that knowledge of the Apple, I don't think this ever would have been possible. And as a postscript to all this, Seamus said that much the same thing can be done with software written for the Commodore 64, although the trade-offs there are a bit harder. And... He pointed me to a link of a partial conversion of some C64 software. I think it was Bard's Tale. So this is just a really impressive piece of hacking. After learning how it was done, it seems possible, but just to make that leap of considering the possibility this could work, um, I think it's just a, a great testament to the hacker spirit. So thanks very much to Atari Age user Seamus for sharing this story. I had a great time learning about it, and playing this game. Uh, this is, a, again, one of, the, one of the very first computer games I ever played, and I have such strong memories of it. When I played it on the Apple II, I remember getting to the jets where the jets would drop bombs. Of course, the bombs would kill me pretty fast, but I remember scores in the, sort of in the hundreds, but I played it and played it these last couple weeks, and I even, I got involved in the Atari Age High Score Club for the very first time. They were running their, um, this is season 11, round 20, and they happened to be on games that started with S. 
and I didn't quite make it in to suggest Sabotage as the main game, but I got it as a bonus game, and Atari Age user, the real Bounty Bob, who's kind of the driver behind the High Score Club, um, added as a bonus game. So I played and played and played, I got 49 points, which wasn't too bad, and although, of course, the real Bounty, Bounty Bob, who is quite clearly an excellent game player, got well over 100, so I didn't get a bonus point in the game I suggested, but that's okay. I also got my very first points in the Atari Age High Score Club, I played Sea Dragon, I think I got three points or something. I was like 11th or... So that was fun. Yeah, I look, to, look forward to playing more with the Atari Age High Score Club. And if you haven't, you should try it out. There were any number of modern updates to this game, but none, in my opinion, ratchet matches the retro goodness of the original. I guess there was one that was included on uh, the first iPods that had screens. But now that you can play on the Internet Archive, play the original Apple II version, and you can play it on the Atari, I don't think there's any reason to have another version of the game. So that's it for this episode. This is a sort of an unusually technically dense episode. I expect to do this every once in a while or really kind of dive down deep in the technical details, but certainly not all the time. Thanks again to Paul Hagstrom for talking about some Apple II stuff. And thanks to Atari Age user Seamus for the, sharing all the details of the conversion. Next episode, I think I am going to get away from the arcade games and talk about a classic strategy game, Eastern Front 1941 by Chris Crawford. I've never actually played this game before, and it's something that I've always wanted to try, and I've heard so many good things about. So if you have any feedback about this episode, you can contact me via email at feedback at playermissile.com, or on Twitter, I'm at Atari8BitGames. I'm a proud member of the Throwback Network. Visit throwbacknetwork.net for more retro podcasts than you can shake your CX-40 joystick at. To close us out, here's some pokey music from Adam Gilmore called Zybex. And I'll see you in April 1981 for Eastern Front by Chris Crawford.
all this is going to do is generate uh, you know feedback emails saying that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll cut all this out anyway.